Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shuklastan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. Happy Olympic and Paralympic year. Happy new Olympic Paralympic year. We've been saying that a lot. <laughs> Third year in a row. I know. <laughs> but it's coming. It's less than 30 days to Beijing. And Stop. I know that Stop. really scares me. I have a long list of stuff to do still, but we will get to Beijing sooner or later. As long as COVID doesn't stop us. I've been having nightmares. Now I don't have COVID. I was tested before the holidays so that I could see people, but I have just this recurring nightmare of one or both of us getting COVID oh. in the next month. So I think I'm going to start walking around with like a helmet <laughs> with a stick coming out either side so that no one can get close. It's it's really scary around here. I don't know how it is by you, but it's uh, it, everybody's got COVID. It's yeah, scary. We, in Ohio, we're having our highest case rates in the pandemic uh, almost on a daily basis. It's really tough. All of the hospitals are full or they're so understaffed that they may have beds, but they don't have staff to serve those patients. So it's been really rough. I've noticed lately on the news that the doctors that they interview regularly look more and more tired and more and more haggard. And it makes me feel really bad. They're they're having a rough job these days. You know, in, in our world, there are a lot of athletes who are getting sick. Michaela Schifrin, most famously, I guess, in the past week has tested positive yeah, it, it is a very big worry for, uh, you know who tested positive and can't go to Olympic trials? Bonnie Blair's daughter. Oh. Also speed skates. And I've read about this in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. She's tested positive, can't compete at the trials, but this was not her. She hadn't anticipated going to the Olympics. She's still in, in working her way up the, the ranks, but this was going to be like her Olympics. Her so. debut at the trials. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of athletes who will not be heading to Beijing, not necessarily because they're positive at that time, because they can't compete at their nationals or at their trials. Right, right. Or the Which last is- qualifying. I know the mixed curling teams in Canada had to cancel their trials. Wow. And now they don't know who's going to be the mixed team because, I mean, it's competitive. It's not just a, oh, yeah, they're the best team. Mm-hmm. It's it's really tough. and But... It- to put it into perspective, maybe it's kind of like if you got sick before the Olympics or you got injured before the Olympics. Remember, Michelle Carter could not go to Tokyo because she was injured. Yes. Uh, Deanna Price did not have a great Olympics because she got injured, even though she had fabulous U.S. Olympic trials. Right. It just happens. And it's just it's, so unfortunate. It's part of the system. It's part of the game. Oh, <sighs> You know what else is part of the game? Donating to us. <laughs> because darn it, we are getting to Beijing. That's right. Oh, we wanted to give a special shout out to all of our Patreon patrons for providing financial support to the show and keeping our flame alive. You will hear more about how your money is utilized later on in the show. If you would like to be a Patreon patron of the week or get other wonderful bonus content, take a look at our different levels of support and very cool bonus gifts at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. If you would like to give us a one-time bonus, we have a lot of options for one-time donations. Check out flamealivepod.com slash support for all of them. It includes PayPal, Venmo, buy me a coffee and coffee. And thank you to, uh, we did get a holiday bonus, so we really appreciate it. So today we are going back to the luge track and we are talking with U.S. doubles loser Jason Turdeman. 
Jason is a two-time Olympian. He competed at 2014 with Christian Nickham and 2018 with Matt Mortensen. And in 2018, he and Matt were part of the relay team that finished fourth at Pyeongchang. Jason has had a long and illustrious career on the World Cup circuit, and he's currently racing with loser Chris Mazder in hopes of getting a berth at Beijing 2022. Jason talked with us about how his event works. Take a listen. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Doubles Luge, this is your third go-around in Doubles Luge for the Olympics. You've had a, a very long career Let's talk about how doubles lose work. So first off, we've got a sled that's different than a singles lose sled. So tell us a little bit about how it's different. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of differences between a singles lose sled and a doubles lose sled. First and foremost, the size of the sled. So the first thing people notice, it's a little bit, uh, I take longer and possibly a little bit wider than most of the single sleds because it does have to account for the fact that there are two bodies on top, so it's a little bit more weight. But they steer almost the exact same as a single loose sled. So there's four major points of steering. We have our legs, our hands, our shoulders, and then just the way we move our bodies and, and keep our body weight moving one, one way or the other. They both actually drive the same. A, a single sled, I like to say, is like driving a Formula One car. Uh, it's very quick to react, or can be at least. And then you get the double sled is more like driving a double-decker bus. Just because of the size difference, it makes it a little bit harder to steer. And then the only other major difference between a singles and a doubles loose sled is the weight of the sled. A doubles loose sled is allowed to weigh about 15 pounds on average more uh, than, a, than a singles loose sled. What's the proper way to refer to each athlete? Is it front and back? Top and bottom, actually. Top and bottom, uh, okay. The, the, the normal, yep, the normal words used when describing the athletes on a double sled. So who's leading the dance? Uh, well, primarily the guy on top, that athlete or, or woman on top, there is uh, women's doubles loose, just became a, a full-on discipline, but primarily the top athlete the one that you see on the sled when laying in position, mostly because they can see what's coming in front of them. So they're in charge of all the fine minute steers to get us in and out of corners the way we want to be entering and exiting. And then the back athlete, the bottom athlete is, is in, in charge of number one, keeping the sled stable because they're in full contact with the sled. And number two is when you get to high pressure corners with big leverage steering, that athlete just also has more leverage. So they're in, involved in really pushing through high pressure corners and pressure points down the track. It's like a little dance where both athletes kind of, there's a plan involved. There's a plan in place at every run, usually guided by the top athlete. And then uh, it's kind of like improvisation all the way down where you're just working off of each other, steering, uh, trying to keep things going in the right direction. How do you communicate on the track? Because I assume you can't actually hear one uh, another. That's correct. There's no, there's no headsets. There's no microphones. Uh, it is literally just going, we have a plan on each run. Like I said, you go through that plan before you take the run. But once you pull the helmet on, pull the face shield down and you're going down the track, it's really kind of just going off of each other. It's very interesting that you're not able to communicate. When you think about Formula One, those drivers are in full contact with their pit crew and their boss like the whole way around the track. But in, in doubles luge, it's pretty much just interacting and reacting to each other's drives. If you're on a double-decker bus, it's like the, the radio to the main tower is broken. Right, exactly. So we're just, it's, you're, you're on your own, but you are with somebody on the way down the hill and you're just trying to work together to get there as safely and quickly as possible. I have, I have so many questions. I don't even know where to start. And you are traditionally on the bottom, correct? You have been with all your uh, different every, teammates. Yeah, on, on the World Cup level and in and, and any kind of national competition level yeah I've always been the, the guy underneath the guy you hide and why is that is there a reason why uh, you're on the bottom and and the other athletes on the top or it's just that's the way yeah, it works? Uh, it's it's the way it works it's a it's an aerodynamic um, advantage to put the taller athlete in the top position and the smaller athlete underneath kind of hiding that athlete engulfing them during the wind flow over the it's a very aerodynamic based sport we are timed to the one thousandth of a second, and it just it makes more sense aerodynamically to have the longer, taller athlete on top, breaking the wind and allowing the flow over top. Uh, and you try and almost match where the head position would be for both athletes to be almost right behind each other. That way, the draft on the end uh, breaks off cleaner. But I have been lucky enough. Uh, a couple of years ago, I took a run with uh, a much younger athlete than myself, a young teenager, who was still smaller than me. I'm only five six, five seven on a good day. And I was able to take a run with 
with a young athlete and actually sit on top and take a run down from a junior start in Lake Placid, which is a home track for me, and got to experience what it's like to be on top. And it is a totally different ride up there. How does that ride differ then? So in my position on the sled as a as the bottom man, I go off of feeling. I'm literally staring at the back of my teammates helmet the whole ride. I have my peripheral vision so I can tell like where we are entering and exiting corners just based off of the, how, the distance to the, the nearest wall. But it's a, it's a pretty, you know, I, I like to think that I could close my eyes and take a run from my position and still fully understand where I'm at. Oh, when you get on top and you, you can see, it, it changes things. When I, when I took the run with that young athlete and I was up top, we went from a very mellow start, maybe halfway up the hill. Uh, which is nowhere near the speeds that I reach on World Cup competitions or Olympic level races. But I felt like I was going much faster than I'd ever gone before on the double sled, strictly because I could see the lights going by. I could see the corners coming. Granted, we were only maybe going 40 to 45 miles an hour, and I've been clocked at 86, 87. So it's just the visual really changed the ride for me. How do you learn a track? And that was a big deal for Beijing with the most of the World Cup athletes had to learn this track this year. So how, how yep. do you do that? Well, when there's a new track, there's a homologation period where there's a couple athletes that get invited and they go and they test out the corners and they find the, the pressure points throughout the track, the driving lines, at least for a safe ride down. And then that is kind of distributed out to the International Federation. Um, there's also a point of view video that was sent out that we were able to study. So we know before we get to a track, which way the corners go. But the best way to really learn a track is to vi- use a lot of visualization. We do a lot of what we call mind runs, where we'll just you know sit down on a, on a chair, on a bench, close your eyes and just picture yourself going down the track. And that really helps you understand what's, what's coming and prepares your body for you know, when you do finally get to take that run, you're already kind of aware of what's what's in front of you, but there's really nothing like trial and error. Uh, you know, we all went through it in, in November in Beijing until you actually take the runs. You don't know exactly how strong those pressure points are. You don't know how strong the steers need to be. And we go through a pretty strenuous trial and error period where you're hitting walls, you're crashing, but you're learning the curves as you go. And we're all professionals at luge at this level. So we've all been doing it long enough to understand what's going on underneath us. And it doesn't take too, too long, maybe a week or two before people have the track mastered. So what does the Beijing track offer that other tracks do not? One of the really important characteristics of Beijing is how long the track is. The runs are, are just under a minute long from both the men's, women's, and double starts. So uh, in Luge, normally it's only a 50-second, 45. In some tracks, like Whistler, it's only 33 seconds. So you we're under stress for longer on this run which is something people did notice right away. Granted, we also checked that track out in a very early part of the year when people aren't maybe fully into sliding form, but the track is very long. It's got a a lack of pressure in the corners characteristic to it. That makes it very interesting. We use pressure in luge in the corners as a point of knowing where to drive. It's usually a really big indicator when you hit a pressure point, the sled gets picked up in the corner. Uh, That's usually somewhere you need to be steering so you can create as much speed as possible and as smooth a line as possible. So Beijing actually lacks a lot of that. So when you're in a corner, especially in my position on the sled, um, where I can't see when we're in a big corner and I, I can't feel any pressure to the corner, I have no idea if we're high, we're low, you know, when we're coming to an exit or uh, I don't know exactly how long away that is. It makes it for more of a visualizing track. So like we're looking for little markers, a change in the, in the roof of the track or the short wall, the lower wall in the corner, maybe has a wood cover towards the end of it and try to pick up things like that so I know where I am so I can feel the exit to the corners better. But uh, it definitely threw us all for a loop, and I think it'll make for a very exciting and hopefully level playing field come February for the Olympic Games. So the weather there is supposed to be very cold and very dry. So how does that affect sliding when it's not snowy or it's, you know, really cold? Yeah, when I think about those kind of conditions, I think about great hard ice. So it's going to be a little less control for most athletes. I think it's going to be a lot about how people set their sleds up, but we expect it to be some top-notch ice for the games, uh, as it always is. Even when it's warmer uh, and more humid, the ice gets refrigerated from underneath. So there's a, what is it? It's called the, like the ice house at each track. And at the bottom, you can see steam coming out. And that's just them pumping through the refrigeration under the track to create really good 
top layer so that we have great racing ice. But I'm expecting the, the games to have some really hard, really fast ice, which can make for some excitement on the way down the hill. So I heard you got a new sled this year. What is involved with getting a sled? I mean, because you don't go down to the sled store. So how do you get a sled? Usually the sleds are built in-house by each nation with our sponsors and things like that. A couple of years ago, I made a decision uh, back in 2016, 2015, I think even I started the process to buy my first sled. Um, And I went to an ex-German slider who uh, was very knowledgeable on the way sleds are built and the way they should be set up. Uh, And I spoke with him over a course of a few months and was able to purchase a sled from him that immediately uh, had a great return on investment where my doubles partner at the time, Matt Mortensen, and I came out the first year on that sled and we were able to grab a an overall crystal globe for third in the world that season over a nine week period. And then I've been using that sled here and there with my new partner, Chris, but it's not built for Chris. It was built for my previous partner, Matt's body type. So Chris and I got into discussing what we needed to do to really make this final run as successful as possible. And we decided it was time to invest in a a piece of equipment that's the right geometry for Chris uh, and myself. And so we went in, I got a hold of my same sled designer. I said, hey, you know, we're looking to, to make another one, a newer one, uh, maybe a little bit different design to try and make this you know, work a lot easier for Chris and myself. And of course, you know, theoretically, everything's going to you know, run smoothly, but you get into reality and you, you got to tinker with everything. And Chris and I are going through that process right now, trying to get this sled ready for February. What are you allowed to tinker with? There's a lot of things. In luge, we have a very strict rule book, but there are a lot of things we can mess with the the composition of the steel, what what our runners are actually made out of is very important. The way they ride on the ice, the angle which they they hit the ice, the bow of the steel is very important. That is the way the rock works forward to back. There's the parallel difference between the two runners, uh, and then there's other little things in the suspension that we try to work on to make things as vibration dampening as possible because it is, again, to the thousandth of a second, every thousandth counts, especially over a two-run, two-mile race. So we're just really trying to work things out to make things as consistent as possible and as fast as possible at the same time for us. Do, do you have different runners for different tracks, or can you just pound them in and out of shape as you go to each track? It really depends on the support uh, you have. A lot of my teammates have three, four, five different sets of runners. Chris and I invested in a set that'll be best for Beijing. So we're trying to, while sliding and competing at other tracks, still keep in mind that the end goal is just the race in February. So we're trying to just prepare as best we can for the style of track we'll race on in Beijing. So we're not trying to change them too often, but we will try and do small changes just to see what works and what doesn't with this new geometry of the sled. So I am also the money person and I hear the word invest and, and we know that everything costs a lot of money and there's not a ton of money as a loser. What kind of money are we talking about in investing in runners or investing in a new sled? Uh, well, it really depends on how, like how, how much you can get. Right. So we have in the U S we work with, with Dow chemical and uh, Norton abrasives. And those guys are great on helping out the team, get the equipment that we need. Sleds are not cheap, and owning my own sled now, owning two sleds, and I'd say it's priceless to really have the equipment that you know you can trust. But there obviously is a price tag on things, and it's it can be anywhere. It's like buying a new car. I've invested at least twenty five thousand dollars between the two sleds. The return on investment with you know having the confidence in my equipment, the security of knowing what I have is you know the best I could possibly have under me, and the results that we can get. And hopefully everything will return itself fivefold. Okay, so you announced that this is going to be your last season. What yep. will happen to those sleds when you retire? Uh, well, one of them I'm definitely keeping. I'm not going to stop sliding, but I'll stop competing. We have a master's race in the United States for retired athletes and lovers of luge. And I have to wait a few years out of, after not competing internationally before I'm allowed to actually race in that race. But I've already spoken with uh, my old doubles partner, Matt Morrison. He wants to continue sliding as well for fun. So the one sled I'm definitely going to hang on to uh, just so that I have the ability to slide as long as I want and have the fun with my friends still every day. But 
I'm hoping that I will be able to get USA Luge to take the second sled off my hands and we can get it to the next generation and hopefully help somebody else go faster. Okay, so speaking of your sleds, you have the worst lost luggage story about the sleds this year. Yeah, it's luckily for me, I'm sure you're talking about the the boxes that got left in China. Yes, uh, exactly. After the first week of competition. Yeah, that was that was pretty wild. Luckily for me, uh, my equipment did make it to Russia, both of my sleds, and luckily for Chris, my doubles partner, his single sled was also there. I did have one teammate that was unfortunately left without a sled for three weeks, and that's you know, everybody's worst nightmare, especially in a year where there's so much on the line each week with Olympic qualifications going on. But uh, my teammate Johnny was without a sled for three weeks. You know, it shows to the, to the community in the sport that while we were in Russia, he was given a Russian sled from the Russian Federation free of charge to ride and race on. And then when we were in Germany for a week without the sleds again, you know, the German Federation offered up a sled and Johnny was still able to slide and compete. Uh, you know, it's a small sport. There's only, you know, around 200 people that do it at our level. And we compete against each other all year, every year. So we, we know each other really well. And it's, it just goes to show how tight-knit the sport is that we were able to still, without you know, all the equipment around, get athletes on sleds and still competing. What is next on the qualification path for you and Chris? So right now through, I think it's January 10th, is the qualification period for both the International Federation's qualifications for slots at the Olympics per nation and for the United States Olympic team to be announced on. Chris and I have two-thirds of, of a qualification tier already done. Uh, we're really looking for just one more solid result, a top 10 in either Winterberg, Germany, or Sibul de Lapia, the next two stops in the World Cup Tour, to solidify our abilities to be nominated to the Olympic team. So, yeah, you have a short week off because now you have to go back to Europe pretty much right yep. away for, for this. Yeah, and we had a, a five-day break on the holidays. Oh, man. We were just talking yeah. with a biathlete, and she said that being from the U.S. and having to compete mostly in Europe is kind of a bonus for the U.S. athletes. Do you find that as well? Because everybody's going to have to go and adjust to China time, and even though they've been there this year already – you're used to this jet lag and time change. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it, it really, as an American athlete competing mostly in Europe, we become more resilient than most of the, the European countries that when they're on the road for longer periods of time, you can kind of see it get to them. And we definitely see that as an advantage that our team is able to, to travel the world for, for longer trips and be able to still perform uh, without having to deal with the mental problems of being homesick as much or you're just not having the luxuries you normally get when you, you compete at home. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. It was a long five weeks. I know the China trip and the two weeks in Russia for my European counterparts, they were always complaining. I was like, you guys you can't be doing that. Like, we still have another three weeks after this where we're on the road. But, yeah, they just they don't seem to adapt as well to being, being gone for longer periods. So hopefully that plays a nice uh, advantage for us come February. Did you notice that in Pyeongchang when you competed? Not as much because we were competing in Europe the week and a half before, so athletes weren't gone very long. We were hoping during the scheduling process of this season that we would have been in North America right before the Olympics and then had to travel across the Pacific and would have kept the Europeans away from home even longer. Um, but things didn't end up panning out like that for us. So we're going to be competing in Switzerland uh, right before everybody travels to the Games. So that kind of halts the advantage a little bit. Um, because those athletes, I'm sure, will get to go home, enjoy a day or two back in their in their houses, get their laundry done, do all the nice little necessities at home before leaving for a week and a half, two weeks for the games. What kinds of things unique to this season, COVID and China, worry you about going to Beijing? I don't really have too many things that worry me. I mean, we've been in this pandemic now for a couple of years, and obviously it's constantly changing and, and evolving. and the regulations are switching up, but for me, it's just trying to keep my eye on the fact that I can only control a few things, uh, and that's pretty much just the, the personal things with it, my, my physical preparedness, my mental preparedness, uh, the, the work I can do on my sled, everything else that's going on around me. I, I try to look at this white noise and just adapt. 
because that's one thing the, the Olympics taught me that in 2014 is there's this like a plan every day but something's always going to throw you a curveball and you just need to be able to say okay what do I need to do to get to where I want to go uh, and just work off that so I'm not really too worried about the most of it I just hope that we are able to have the games and we are able to compete in February. Okay so I'm totally fascinated with any kind of pairs sport because the relationship between the two of you is so crucial to how well you do. So I, I'm not going to ask what's the most annoying thing about Chris. I am going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> what's the most annoying thing about you? <laughs> no, not what the most annoying thing about you, but it just it, talk a little bit about, because you've had two other partners and talk a yep. little bit about finding that communication, finding that balance of obviously you're two different people with two very different personalities but you have to work together and not be angry with each other when you go down the slide, go down the track because somebody could die. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I like to compare doubles luge partners to a married couple because it's, it's a lot, right? We're, we're both chasing the same goal, you know, as you find married couples to be doing, you're living together on the road for months out of the year, five, six months at a time, you know, and you're going to work every day together. So there's not much separation. So communication is obviously key. You know, it, it does help that we, I've known Chris a very long time. Chris and I actually started doubles together when we were 14. So we have a very long history together. But like you said, I've stood with a bunch of different guys and it's definitely, there's an adjustment period. Uh, I think the, the most difficult part of switching partners is getting used to the sliding style of each individual. It does take a little bit of time, but you, you do the everyday stuff. And then, you know, everybody is different. We all have our own attitudes and egos and, you know, I want to try it this way and I want to try it that way. And it's, it's a lot of compromising and it's a lot of trial and error on the track. And you learn how that person deals with the adversity and you kind of have to figure out your role. So in like in doubles, which I like to say the top guy is Michael Jordan, the bottom guy is Scotty Pippen. You got to be the support player and you got to help any way you can. So uh, I try to just be as compromising as possible with my teammate and he, it, has, it has worked out for me. I've been able to find success with each one. So yeah, it's just working together on, a, on an end goal and making sure you both communicate how you want to get there. How do you deal with injuries to one or the other? Cause that if you've been injured, obviously, or your partner has been injured, how yeah. does that feel when you're totally ready to go and your partner is not, and you've been in the reverse position where you've been the one who's hurt and your partner is healthy. Yeah, I've definitely been on both ends of that. It's definitely frustrating, right? Because it, it, it comes, you know, if you're not the injured one, it's completely out of your control. And when you are the injured one, you feel like you're letting your teammate down. It's it's very frustrating. But, you know, we, we try to support each other every day, no matter what's going on. Um, like this year, I missed the entire preseason. Going into the preseason, I'm, I was in the best shape of my life at 32 years old. And uh, I was very excited about that. And then the second day of, of training, my doubles partner broke his foot. So we were off the sled the entire preseason. And, and that became very frustrating for him, I know, because he wanted to be sliding. Uh, and I know how frustrating it was for me just because I want to get things going. This is a big year. But, you know, staying calm and, and really just trying to be understanding of what that person's going through as well, uh, I found to be helpful for me to get over my issues with injury. And Again, we're, we're both headed for the same goal. And I know that Chris is, when he is injured, he's doing everything he can to get back on the sled as soon as possible and, and vice versa. Just a quick weight question, because obviously there is a weight limit to the doubles. And Christmas yep. is coming. And is this going to yeah. be like the worst Christmas ever? Because you can't eat what you want to eat? Well, no, because luge is a gravity sport. So a little bit of weight is always a good thing. But we do, we do what we call weigh-ins for competitions. Uh, and each week there's an opportunity for you to re-weigh in. So you go in in very minimal base layer apparel, you step on the scale. Uh, and in luge, since it is a gravity sport, there's a cap to where athletes are allowed to add extra weight to themselves in the sled. And that's around 90 kilos for the athlete's body weight. And so I'm not that heavy. I've never been anywhere near that heavy. So I know that when I weigh in, I'll be allowed to wear the allotted extra weight. And then Chris is, hovers around the, the 90 kilo mark. So I think we'll be all right either way. But we, when you do get to competition, you get to weigh in. And then there's a, a scale taken off of that weigh-in weight. Then they give you what you're allowed to weigh in competition. Where do you put that extra weight? Is it like a vest? Uh, so I have a, so some athletes use vests. I use a pair of bike shorts. 
that have sewn in pockets. Um, and that's, I keep my weight, you know, behind my, my butt and then below my, behind my hamstrings as well. Uh, and that's for a purpose is to keep our weight as far forward as possible uh, so that the sled stays within its balance point that we want it to be at while we're on top of the sled. Interesting. All right, Jason, thank you for this. Thank you so much, Jason. Jason and Team USA took bronze in the team relay at the most recent World Cup race in Winterberg, Germany. And uh, Segulda Latvia is up next on the World Cup circuit. So that will be this weekend. I'm excited. I hope he and, and Chris do well. We do love our sliders. We do. And they're they're so close. I mean, it's I think with so many events being canceled and so many COVID problems, there are a lot of athletes also just on edge because they've got to qualify and we're out of time. Yeah, they're on the bubble, not having enough points. Right. So hopefully, Jason, we are rooting for you and Chris. Uh, you can follow Jason on Instagram. He's at Jason Turdeman. On Facebook, he is Jason Turdeman Official. And on Twitter, he is J Turdeman USA. We will have links to those in the show notes. If you liked this interview and want to learn more about the Singles Luge event, check out episode 15, which is our interview with Shiva Keshevin. One of my favorites. I know. I just love Shiva. I, hope, I mean, I haven't looked to see if the slider he's coaching is has qualified yet, but I, I hope he does so I can see him in person. Maybe. Whatever the closed loop system allows. Just wave at him from a distance. That sound means it's time for our history moment. New year, new games that we're looking at. This year we are looking at Albertville in 1992, Winter Olympics there. Allison, you're going to start us off. Yeah, so just some nice big facts about Albertville. Uh, there were 1,801 athletes, 64 teams, and 57 events. A little smaller than what we're going to see in Beijing. Lots of firsts. So it was the first Winter Olympic appearance for Algeria, Bermuda, Brazil, Honduras, Ireland, Swaziland, Croatia, and Slovenia. Croatia and Slovenia being new countries at the time. The Ireland one really surprised me. That surprises me too. And Swaziland, now known as Eswatini. Uh, it was also the debut for short track speed skating moguls and women's biathlon. One of our favorite events, and it hasn't been around all that long. I know. We're going to have to look into this. Yeah, we're going to. I mean, all of these stories, we're definitely going to explore more. Uh, it was also the first Winter Olympic medal for an athlete from Oceania, Annalise Koberger from New Zealand, won a downhill skiing event. Yay! And Australia and New Zealand have both come on pretty strong as uh, freestyle skiing powerhouses now. So they, they've won more since then. Also a bunch of lasts. It was the last winter games held in the same year as the summer games. This was so then the we, we switched to that, that every other even year. It was the last games with demonstration sports. It was curling, speed skiing, aerials, and our personal favorite ski ballet. We will have stories about ski ballet this year. That is for sure. Oh my goodness. I am also curious about speed skiing. Since I would like to know how it is different from downhill. There's some great and some pretty tragic stories related to speed skiing mm. from 92. So we'll get to that later in the year. It's also the last games to have an outdoor long track speed skating venue. Interesting. I thought that the outdoor venue had gone away earlier. Mm hmm. Uh, I remember the outdoor venue from 1980. And then we visited the Lake Plaza venue. I thought that was the last one. But it hung yeah. around until 92. Interesting. Yeah, some big stars that I'm sure we'll talk about during the year. Christy Yamaguchi, Alberto Tomba. I remember um, him from 1988. He was still around. It's a big year. Yeah, Johan Olivkos and Bjorn Dali. Mm. That's a name that we said a lot. You know, Koss did go on in 1994 to be like, Koss the boss. That was... Good for yeah, him, all these names stuck around for more than one games. And a newly reunified Germany topped the medal table with both the most golds and the most medals overall, but only a dozen countries won medals at this games. Really? Yeah, not that many countries had medals. That's really interesting. I wonder how that compares to something like what Pyeongchang or, you know, we'll have to keep an eye on that for Beijing. 
And I am really looking forward to our moment when we get to talk about the mascot, Magique. <laughs> One of the most forgettable mascots. <laughs> but weren't these also the me- the medals were by Lalique? The medals were by Lalique and they are mostly crystal. So we will definitely do a segment on them. I remember at the time thinking how disappointing it would be to win these medals because they were enormous. I can't wait to find out exactly how much they weighed. They were very, very large, but the entire center section was Lalique crystal with just this thin band of the metal on each side. So hard to tell what metal you were. Yes, especially the difference between gold and bronze because there was so little, but they were huge. Interesting. Well, I am looking forward to this. We are going to have some fun. We had, I was doing some research just on Beijing to prep for today's show. And uh, China has released its kit. And South China Morning Post does not like the kit. They said it was awful. And then had the list of some of the top worst uniforms in uh, Olympic history. And several of them came from Albertville 1992. Yes. There were some interesting choices because we're coming out of the go-go 80s, but we're not quite into the minimalist 90s. So you had 92 was this weird pivot point where you've got some really interesting color choices. Right. And also different politically, we're coming off of a Summer Olympics in South Korea, where they made kind of their big world debut You've got the collapse of the Iron Curtain and the fall of the Berlin Wall happened. And we're now into the fall of the Soviet Union and the war in Yugoslavia is going on as well. So this is it's a very interesting time in history. So we will see how how it plays out in Albertville. Welcome to Shukflistan. Yes, it's time to check in with our team, Keep the Flame Alive. These are guests who have been on the show previously and now are are citizens of Shukflistan, our country. First up, hockey player Brianna Decker has been named to her third U.S. Women's Olympic hockey team. So congratulations to her. Nate Bartolome will be competing with partner Katie McBeath at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships this weekend. Also competing this weekend is Aaron Jackson, who will be at the U.S. Speed Skating Olympic Trials. The 500 meter, which is her signature race, is on Friday evening. So go, Aaron, go get that Olympic spot. So excited. Uh, Biathlete Claire Egan will be competing in Oberhof, Germany this weekend. Snowboarder Alex Diebold and wife Ashley have announced that they are expecting baby number two, which is so exciting. Baby Diebold. Jessica LeClerc spoke at USA Hockey's Advanced Officiating Symposium this past August and is the referee-in-chief for the state of Maine. She was featured on the USA Hockey Magazine podcast, and we will have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, News from Beijing. The closed loop has opened. But I thought it was closed. Yes. But it's open for business. It's open for people to get into. And then they will be closed off. So this is the system that Beijing 2022 has put into place for COVID protocols and to keep everyone as safe as possible. It's not quite a bubble, but it, it seems like as many people who are involved with the games, including volunteers, have to be in this closed loop system, which you and I will both enter at some point. And then that will be all separated from the rest of China. So it will be interesting to see how this works and how effective it is. But yeah, it's less than 30 days to go. And and the broadcasters and other media are already arriving. And athletes will be arriving in short order. And it's go time. Why did I suddenly have a paralyzing fear? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe it's because... Arrangements are hard. We'll see. <laughs> but on a happier note, yes, 
Along with the celebration for 30 days to go, the organizing committee released its victory ceremony elements and talked about what's going to happen with the medal ceremonies. So the medal ceremonies will take place in two parts. There will be a souvenir ceremony in the competition venue, and then they will have a traditional ceremony in the medals plaza. There are apparently going to be cultural exhibitions before and after the medal ceremony, but those have not been clarified yet. There's going to be a medals plaza in Beijing, and I think there's going to be ones in some of the other venues. I'm not sure if those athletes will have to travel back to Beijing or not. But it's going to be a temporary venue that will look like an igloo design in between the bird's nest and the ice cube. So it's going to be in that big Olympics plaza that's got venues already. The podium that they will have is made of recyclable materials, which is nice. It didn't sound like... To me, that sounds like you can recycle the materials. It does not sound as cool as the Tokyo 2020. These podiums are made of stuff we've recycled. But at least they're, they've still got an eye on sustainability. Medalists will receive custom gifts based on the mascots Bing Dwen Dwen and Shui Ron Ron. These are really cool. So they get a little mascot stuffed animal that will be surrounded by a wreath that is golden. And the wreath will be woven of pine, bamboo, and plum, known as the Three Friends of the Cold. So these materials have been selected to symbolize tenacity, vigorous vitality, and express praise, respect, and good wishes to the medalist. Get to the bouquet. That's the best part. Bouquet. Oh, this is really, this is such a great idea. The bouquet, instead of receiving real flowers, the bouquets will be hand-knitted from cashmere. And They're they will- stunning. Yes, and they will look like a bouquet of flowers. It will have a, that same shape, and the stem will be wrapped in ribbon, and it will the ribbon will say Beijing 2022, but they are beautiful. And they'll last forever. Yes. I always wondered, like, what do you do with a bouquet when you're done? Because you can't really take it with you, right? Unless you took some of the flowers and, and dried them as quickly as you could. And I don't know, and probably a lot of countries don't even allow you to bring any kind of plant material back mm-hmm. into the country. And this will be cashmere, so it'll be soft and cuddly. This all sounds very cool to me. I, I like a lot of these elements. I think they're... And the, the idea of that knit flowers for winter, doesn't it? It just makes so much sense. It does. It really does. And you could do paper flowers for summer, and it'd be, it would be equally as nice, I think. Along with the, the podium and what the medalist receives are the uniforms that the medal ceremony givers will as i like to call them the metal girls yes exactly but there are metal boys too there are. They so they've released those uniforms as well and i i do think they're lovely however the chinese uniforms are they're they're coats that are about knee length and they are either a dark blue a red or like a teal blue and they have a, a waistline to them because there's a point, an important detail. And then the bottom of the coat is embroidered in a scene, like a mountain scene or something like that. And then they have hats as well that go with them that are pretty form-fitting to their head. And I think they're very elegant. They look they stunning. They have fur they're... trim at the collar and yeah. the cuffs and yes. these very lovely puffed sleeves. Yes. It sort of looks like almost a take on a Victorian skating costume. Oh, I I like that idea. But I I think they're lovely, but immediate backlash from Korea saying that this is plagiarism of their medal ceremony uniforms, which were based on the hanbok uh, costume that they have, uh, or based on the hanbok traditional dress in Korea. But look, it's going to be a coat because it's winter and you need a coat. But the hanboks, they have different hats. And they have more of a an overlay that has no waist. But the biggest complaint was they copied the colors. Because it isn't a color you would expect. It's not an icy blue. It's a very particular blue. The red makes sense, obviously, as China is, red is so symbolic for them. But I, I see the complaints. It's, it's awfully close. Well, the, the Korean red and blue were for the colors of the flag. I'm not there. I'm thinking people are complaining to complain. But it, there, there is a blue that is close out of the three shades of blue that they have. 
there is red. Red is red. China is also has red all over their flag. So that makes sense. And I think of the blue as ice and snow. I still want one. Yeah, I know. They're beautiful. beautiful. They're beautiful. They look very flattering, too. Yes. And just uh, and also Pyeongchang's was beautiful as well and had a lot of symbolism, which I really enjoyed. But I think the medal ceremonies will be very nice. I'm hopeful. And if it's not, you just snuggle with your flowers. <laughs> Do you think they'll have those available for us to buy? Like something similar? Doubtful. Oh, come on. Someone well, knit, yeah. Someone knit <laughs> me some flowers. Apparently I need them. <laughs> uh, some countries have released their kits. So we have kit from Australia, which is similar to the summer one where they had the blazer with all the Olympians names on the inside. Gets me every time. Doing it again. All right. And then China released their uniforms, which are mostly red and white. And then there's some black and red ones. So a lot of their speed suits are black with red accents. Because that makes you go faster. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So we are busy working on plans to get there. I will say that. This has not been... I, honestly, thank you again to everybody who supported the Kickstarter. Because, boy, that Kickstarter money... Is really coming in handy as we keep adding, as just the costs of everything start to skyrocket. So I still, I'm, I have a flight confirmation. That was the big news of this week. I have a flight confirmation. Flight, For there? No, no, I have a whole thing. I have a oh, whole. Good, good. Okay, good. I got so we are, flights is not just like go to Orbitz or any airline website and book a flight to China. No, no, no. You have to go through a process. Only 14 airlines are allowed to fly Olympic and Paralympic participants in. And you have to fly to a hub city. There are four hubs. And from those hubs, you will then fly directly to Beijing. And that once you get to the hub, I think you just get sequestered away from the public. And you are on your special Olympic flight and you land in Beijing and you are immediately separated from everybody else. You get tested right away. You go to the hotel, you wait for your test results to come in. And if you are negative, you are in the loop and that's it. You're never going into the public again until you leave China. So one of the airlines we could fly was Cathay Pacific. So we started with them. They had flights that got me there the day I needed to be there. And they said, well, we don't have our January flight schedule yet. Get an email from them on December 27th. Hey, we just got our January flights schedule. The flights that you had wanted no longer exist. You either have to get in like five days earlier or two days later. And that was not going to fly because two days later would not give me enough time to really prepare and get the lay of the land. Five, five days, days earlier, you have no hotel. Uh, yeah, and you I ain't getting a hotel because you got to no, get that approved. I could get hotel if they if my hotel had room. That was something like, oh, you can you can call the hotel and find out. But that's a whole nother process. And and only one way. Cathay did not have their flight schedule for March. So when I could get a flight to come home would be up in the air. Talk to Japan Airlines. Similar deal. They could get me there when I needed to be, but it was again a one-way ticket. And it's just I, I was too, I just don't want to deal with a one-way ticket. Please don't and not, take a one-way ticket to China. I and, want you back. So the last airline I, I worked with was Singapore Airlines. And they have a flight that I can get on and get home from. So I have a confirmed reservation. I believe this is the longest flight that is available to take because I'm flying JFK to Singapore on the way back. I will have a little overnight in Singapore. And by overnight in Singapore, I get to go to the hotel in the airport and not leave my room until a few hours before departure. But this flight, because it were because they're special flights, they're also special prices. And when we budgeted for this, we were not looking at like Dan's travel deals website prices. We were not thinking we were going to get to China and back for like 500 bucks or anything like that. We budgeted a healthy price. And this price is a few thousand dollars more than what we had budgeted. So it's it, the Kickstarter money. We really do appreciate it as these costs really go up. 
Yeah, this has not been fun and not, I mean, we knew going to China was going to be challenging and we knew traveling during the pandemic was going to be challenging. I don't even think we anticipated quite what we were going to be dealing with. No, not at all. And for now, I've got nothing. I have no accreditation number. I've got no flight. I've got no nothing. So I just sit on my hands and say, Jill, please have a flight home. <laughs> well, my accreditation card is in the mail. I have a tracking number. Oh, it should get here this week. So I have that and I have a Paralympics accreditation number. So maybe you can get yours too. Okay. That's when you need it. Because now, now we're also getting into the, I have to fill out a special arrival and departure system form to let them know when I'm coming and and all of these things that you need, like I needed my accreditation number in order to book the flight because they need to know that, yes, you are going there for the Olympics. And if you don't have that, you have to get a special letter of invitation. And it's just one thing after another to, to make this trip possible. It's interesting to, you know, it will be a very interesting point in history. And if we get accredited for more Olympics that are not taking place during a pandemic, it will be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how they compare. But yeah, this has been it's been a fun challenge. It's an interesting challenge. I'm very anxious about passing all of these COVID tests, even though I haven't had any COVID, but I'm still paranoid. I've always been a bad test taker. I've always been a bad test taker. <laughs> you thought that was over when you got through the SATs, but no. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but so we do bad. have some good news about Beijing. We have a Beijing viewing guide coming out next week. That is true. We are putting the finishing touches on our viewing guide. So excited about that. It will help you let you know what's happening when and how to plan your viewing and also will contain places for who wins the medals. And after the games are over, we will update that. So if you uh order it now, you will be able to get the updated version as well. You will be able to find it on Amazon and we will definitely share that link far and wide. It's uh, really cheap. It's only $4.99. And that will be coming out next week. Yay. All right. And speaking of, well, we got to get to that guide and keep working on it. So that'll do it for this episode. Let us know what you think about Luge. We love hearing from you. So get in touch with us. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. Our social handle is at flamealivepod. And be sure to join the Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we'll have more stories from the Olympics and Paralympics. I want to say a special thank you to all of those who sent me well wishes. I had a death in the family last week and it was unexpected. So I appreciate that special shout out to listener anthony hope you get well soon as well thank you so much for listening and until next time keep the flame alive